The beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of months ago when my family and I were moving here, as we drove across the continent, we of course stopped at several rest areas. And at one of the rest areas we stopped at, we watched as, as a, a dog owner tie, tried to tie up its dog so she could use the rest area and that dog somehow got loose. And we watched as a, as a dog owner called his, her dog to, to come back, to return, to, to turn back to, to her. And we watched as the dog ignored the owner's calls until the owner finally could get a hold of it. In our passage this morning, Joel 2, verses 12 to 17, we hear a call to return, to turn back. But it's not the call of of a dog owner with its dog. It's a call that comes from the Lord himself through his prophet Joel, graciously calling his covenant people to turn back, to return to him. These verses of our text are really the hinge of the whole book of Joel. If you haven't read the the book of Joel in one sitting, I encourage you to do so. It's it's only three chapters long, even in this week or perhaps today even. Up to this point, the point of our text, the prophet has been describing and reflecting on the recent devastation resulting from the combination of an unprecedented locust plague and a drought. And he has been solemnly warning about the imminent arrival of the day of the Lord, which would bring far worse devastation. But here in our passage, as we come to verse 12, the Lord calls his people to return or to repent. It's really the word for turn here is is the main Old Testament word for, for repent. And on the other side of this text, On the other side of verses 12 to 17, the rest of the book focuses on God's lasting and glorious deliverance of his people from the devastation they had suffered. And so it really assumes then that the people that Joel was prophesying to heeded the call to return in verses 12 to 17. We hope to consider the rest of chapter 2, the beginning really of the description of those blessings next week for both communion and and post-communion. But this morning for our preparatory service, our focus will be on verses 12 to 17 and the Lord's call to his Old Testament people to turn and to return to him. It's a call that comes to us too, you see, just as much as it came to them. Because we all suffer from the same problem that they suffered from. What is that problem? It's our sin. We are all sinners, and sin is is a turning away from God. And because we all have this problem, because we are all sinners, we all need to hear and to heed that call of God to return to Him, to turn to Him in the way of, of initial conversion and in the way of ongoing repentance. Maybe you say, well, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, every time, every time the church of God celebrates the Lord's Supper, it's a visible demonstration that God is willing to receive and to fellowship with sinners who return to Him. The Lord's Supper congregation is not for the unconverted. 
But the Lord's Supper is also not for the sinless. It's for all those who by grace through faith hear and heed this call that comes to us in our text to return to God. It's a call that all of us need, whether we're unconverted, whether we're backsliding, or whether we're Christians struggling with the reality of remaining sin. And so we want to listen then to our text under the theme, the Lord's gracious call to return to Him. And we'll follow this theme, follow our text really under three headings. First, the Lord's gracious desire in His call. Secondly, His gracious encouragement with His call. And third, His gracious direction regarding this call. So first, His gracious desire. We see this especially in verses 12 to 13. Look with me again at these verses. Therefore also now says the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. As I mentioned before already, the word translated turn and return are the same, same words in, in Hebrew. It means to make, make a, a U-turn. 180 degree turn. That's what the word literally means. It implies then that the people to whom Joel was speaking had turned away from the Lord. Joel doesn't name specifically what sin they are are guilty of, but we know from the Old Testament that Israel and Judah often turned away from God and served idol gods instead. And, And often in the Old Testament, this call comes again in that context. And Joel does give us clues that It was idolatry, specifically that the people were guilty of, because later on in this chapter, the Lord says that that they will know, the people will know that I am God and there is none else. God comes, despite the people's sinful forsaking of Him, they're turning away from Him, and by way of command, He makes known His desire for His people's return. To him. And both the context and the content of this call, of this, of this desire, shows how gracious it is. First, just think about the context. The Lord begins speaking in verse 12 with those words, Therefore, also now. What is, what is he speaking about? What's the therefore, therefore, as you've heard that question, no doubt before. They refer to the great judgment of God that they were in danger of experiencing. Joel 1 tells us that the people had, had already received a foretaste of that judgment with a devastating locust play. Children, do you know what locusts are? Well, we have lots of grasshoppers here in the summer, and, and locusts are really just like, like grasshoppers, flying grasshoppers, and they can form into to huge swarms. I, I read somewhere that they can form into swarms of up to 50,000 million and so if you see a swarm like that, you wouldn't even be able to see the sun. It would, be, it would be totally dark as they were flying across the sky. In Africa, the last couple of years, they have, they have experienced locust plagues. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. It, it's, it happens in the world today. I, I read even that locusts used to be a thing here in North America. So these huge locust swarms had invaded the land. And what had they done? They had devoured all the plants and crops. On top of that, as we read in Joel 1, a drought had made replanting 
useless. Because everything had withered up, the, the, the ground was dry, the rivers had dried up, the barns were empty, farm animals were starving, the meat business was failing. Worst of all, the grain and the drink offerings, the offerings that had to be offered every day, morning and evening, along with the burnt offering in the temple, were cut off. These were the Lord's appointed means for worshipping Him. And so when they were cut off, when those offerings were cut off, so was the assurance of God's presence and of His fellowship and communion with them. You see, these locust plagues, they, they were something that was foretold in, in the Old Testament earlier, in Deuteronomy, that if the people forsook the Lord, this was one of the things that would happen. Locust plagues, drought. So that's what the people had experienced. But these things were only warnings. They were only foretastes, Joel tells us, that pointed to the imminent and far more devastating day of the Lord. The first half of chapter 2, which we read, describes this day in very vivid language. It's a day of darkness and of gloominess, of clouds and of thick darkness. Joel pictures for us a great and strong army. Some commentators think it's, he's referring to another coming locust invasion that's pictured as an army. Others think that he's speaking of a literal army. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that we need to see. He wants the people to see the terror of this day. He, you, 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 as, you, as you read it, you can almost picture it. You can almost imagine it. You can almost hear the galloping of horses and the rumbling of chariots. You can almost hear the roaring of flames as they lick their way along. You can almost hear the rhythmic and the orderly marching of their, the army's steady approach. Closer and closer and closer and closer it comes. And before them, Joel says, is a, gar is a land like the Garden of Eden. But behind it is a desolate wilderness. And nothing can stop this army. Nothing can escape this army. And the most terrifying fact of all is this. The commander of this army is the Lord himself. The almighty God. That's why verse 11 concludes with those solemn words. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it or who can endure it? But it's right in this context. Right when the people are on the verge of God's righteous judgment. His all-consuming judgment because of their unfaithfulness to him. That the Lord comes and speaks in verse 12. Therefore also now says the Lord, turn ye even to me. Do you see? Do you see how gracious this is? God didn't have to stop his army. He didn't have to call his people to return. But he does. He graciously desires the return. He desires what? That people who are being unfaithful to him, in spite of all his faithfulness at all times to them. He desires that people who had forsaken and rejected him for false gods, for idols, even though their Bible warned them that God would punish them, for such sins, he desires that these people 
return to him. Isn't this, isn't this such glorious evidence of what it says in Ezekiel 33 verse 11 that the Lord says there, I do not desire, I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their wicked way and live. The congregation, God's desire is still the same today. Even as the great and the final day of the Lord, the day of judgment is approaching, we see the signs of his coming all around us. You know, we can have all kinds of opinions and whatever about the last two years, what has happened, but isn't it at least this? Isn't it a foretaste? Isn't it a warning of God's judgment? And yet, he brings us to church. He, he has brought you here and me, and me here this morning, whoever we are, to hear his call. Therefore, also now, says the Lord, turn to me. Are you a sinner here this morning? Who of us is not? Who of us have not sinned this past week? Who of us have not turned away from God at some point this week in some way and worshipped the idol of self? And yet God comes to you and to me this morning and he assures you that he heartily and that he sincerely desires your return to him. Do you see? Do you see that from our text? And do you see that what that means is, is not only that he desires your return, but, but that when you do return, he promises he is willing and he will accept all who come to him, all who turn to him in repentance and faith for the first time and again and again. So the context shows just how gracious the Lord's desire is. But not only the context, also the content. The Lord says in verse 12, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God. Notice what the Lord desires of his people here. You know, sometimes we, we think of repentance as a hard doctrine. And it, it's not, an, repentance I'm not saying is easy. Think of it this way. What does God desire in our text? He doesn't desire His people's repayment for their sin. That's what we deserve to be, to have to do. Oh, but He desires their repentance of sin. He doesn't desire their repayment for sin. He desires the repentance from sin. You see, He knows, the Lord knows that we have nothing with which to pay Him back. Nothing with which we could ever satisfy His justice. And so what He desires and what He calls us to do is to return. To turn to Him with whole hearts. With all our heart. Thoroughly, completely, and sincerely. With broken hearts. Recognizing the seriousness of sin. That's really what but his call to, to turn to him with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning really, really drives home. We, because those things were done in the context of death. And sin and congregation is as serious as death. It is death. The wages of sin is death. 
The Bible speaks of this all over and over again. And so what he calls us to do is to turn to him wholeheartedly, brokenheartedly, confessing our sins. It doesn't mean, of course, that returning to God or repentance is easy. No, his call demands that repentance be thorough and sincere. And it's a very, that makes it very searching. You know, the Puritans would sometimes say you can read some of their prayers and they would pray, Lord, we, can, we have to repent of our repentance. But, but it isn't even this specificity of God's call to repent, to, to, to rend your heart. Isn't it so gracious? Because he knows who we are. He knows that we so often can, can, can have false ideas of repentance. We, we so often look to our outward religion, our outward rituals that we do. But no, he calls us to come to him with broken hearts. Because he desires to give himself to us. It's a gracious desire, congregation. And isn't that so helpful to remember as we anticipate the Lord's Supper next week? You see, just seeing the Lord's gracious desire to, for sinners to return to him... It tells us, it warns us on the one hand that we may not come to the Lord's table just carelessly. As if it doesn't matter how we live. And nor may we come proudly as if somehow we can make ourselves worthy to be there. But on the other hand, the Lord's desire here in our text comforts us. Comforts His people because it reminds us that He is willing, He welcomes all who sincerely turn to Him in their misery. Though all who are brokenhearted over their sin, disgusted with their sin, and yet look to his son for all their forgiveness and for salvation, no matter how miserable and how wretched and how unworthy they feel themselves still and know themselves still to be. It's a gracious desire. But perhaps you say, I, I, how do I know the Lord will really receive and welcome me? Maybe for you, as you, you think about going to the Lord's table, it's, you hardly believe that the Lord wants you. Well, this brings us to our second point, the Lord's gracious encouragement with his call. We see this especially from about the middle of verse 13 through, through to the end of verse 14. Look at what it says there, beginning with the second call to, to turn. Turn unto the Lord your God for... For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he repents him of the evil or he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he, will, if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. Even a meat or more accurately a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is God's gracious encouragement. An encouragement that, that encourages us to return to Him. And it's so gracious because it's so well-grounded and so faith-building and ultimately so Christ-directing. Notice first how well-grounded this encouragement is. Where, does, where is it rooted? Where is the encouragement to, to return to God rooted in? It's rooted in His covenant and His character. The text reminds us of the covenant between God and his people when it says, Turn unto the Lord your God. Your God. It's not so encouraging. Because you see, the people who had disowned the Lord, 
to those people, the Lord still says, I am your God. I am willing to be your God, though you have sinned against me and though you have sinned against my grace. It's covenant. Covenant that really reveals the character of the Lord and that character that is so beautifully described for us in our text. And that's the essence of his encouragement. The text says that he is gracious and merciful. What a beautiful beginning. What a beautiful beginning to this description of God. He is gracious and merciful. Gracious, that's, that's a word that describes the Lord's goodwill toward undeserving sinners. And merciful. He doesn't just show mercy, he is merciful. A word that describes, that seeks to capture, if it can, the infinite fullness of God's tender compassion. Oh, isn't this an encouragement to return to Him, to turn to Him with all of our heart, and to turn to Him with hearts broken over sin and over our sinfulness. But that's not all. He is also, the text says, slow to anger. God's anger, beloved, is always righteous. It's always righteous. And yet, he is slow to anger. He is patient. Humanly speaking, he should have reached the end of his patience long ago with Israel and Judah. And he should have reached the end of his patience, if we're honest with ourselves, he should have reached the end of his patience with us ourselves. But the Lord is slow to anger. He, he kept surprising his people and he keeps surprising his people with more and more patience, more and more long-suffering. You look back at your life, dear child of God, don't you see that? Don't you know that? How patient the Lord has been with you in spite of your sin. But it's not just that he's slow to anger. The text says he is also of great kindness. That means he is overflowing in loyal, unfailing, steadfast covenant love. You could really just say it this way. His loving kindness is excessive. That's who the Lord is. A God of excessive loving kindness. How true. How true this is. Don't we, don't we see that from Scripture? How many times up to this point... In the Old Testament, had, had not God's people forsaken him for dumb and for deaf idols, yet the Lord came again and again and again in love to his idolatrous people, showing many kindnesses, showing a variety of kindnesses. If you read the book before this one, the prophet before in Hosea, the Lord describes himself as the Hosea for his Gomer. But there's one more aspect to his character our text mentions. He repents him of the evil. But better translated there, he relents from doing harm. He is not just slow to anger, you see. He is quick to relent from it and from the calamities that he justly sends. This is God's character, congregation. This is God, the ground of his encouragement to us to return to him. And what kind of ground is this? Is this sandy ground? Is this ground that's unstable for us to stand on? No, it's not, un it's not unstable. It's rock solid. It's rock solid ground, you see, because this is God's character and God doesn't change. And the text really communicates this because this description of God is nothing new. 
God had revealed himself this way hundreds of years earlier to Moses and to Israel. Children, do you remember the story of the golden calf? How, how Israel, when Moses was on the mountain, Israel so quickly turned away from serving God after promising, vowing that they would serve him faithfully. They turned away to, aside to worshiping this golden calf. And maybe you remember how in Exodus 32, the Lord came to Moses and told him what was happening. And he said to Moses, let me alone, that my wrath might burn hot against them that I might consume them. God was full of righteous and of just anger, but what did Moses do? Moses prayed and he pleaded with the Lord to turn from his fierce wrath and to repent of this evil, to relent from doing harm, the harm which he said he would do against his people. Moses pleaded the Lord's covenant. He pleaded the Lord's character, his power and his might. And what happened? You read Exodus 32, the Lord repented of the evil. He relented from the harm which he thought to do unto his people. God graciously stopped a just judgment, a just judgment in answer to Moses' prayer. And maybe you do you remember how, how a couple of chapters later in Exodus 34, God showed his glory to Moses, how he put him in the cleft of the rock and he covered him with his hand as he passed before him and, and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, what? Merciful and gracious slow, long-suffering, or slow to anger, and abundant in goodness and truth. Joel is simply referring back to this revelation of God. He's making the point to the people that this is who God is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change, but, but not only that, not only he doesn't change. It's that he cannot change. It's not just that God is unchanging. It's that he's unchangeable. He is unchangeably gracious. He is unchangeably merciful. He is unchangeably slow to anger. He is unchangeably of great kindness. And he is unchangeably one who relents from doing harm. Oh, do you see how this is such a rock-solid ground for us, encouragement for us to return to Him, to turn to the Lord again and again from our sin. We need to see this congregation because it's right at this point that the devil will come when we have sinned against God. The devil loves to come after he's tempted us to sin and got us to give in. He loves to come and to say, you, you're hopeless. God's not going to receive you. You committed sin again. You committed that sin again. That's what the devil says. But what the word of God says, what the truth of God says, is turn to me, says the Lord. For I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger and of great kindness. And I am one who relents from doing harm. It's so well-grounded. And this encouragement is also so faith-building. We see this especially in verse 14 when the prophet Joel, having proclaimed who God is, asks the question to the people, who knows if he will return and, and repent or relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What is, what is this question meant to do, congregation? 
The Holy Spirit here through Joel is seeking to motivate the people to return to God. He's using the Lord's character that he has just described to work and to build faith in God so that they really do return to him. But they return to him humbly, yes, but also so expectantly. And so he asks the question, who knows? Who knows if the Lord will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? It's important, it's vital congregation to understand the context in which this question was asked. Remember the situation the people are in. They are, they are a picture of misery right now. Their land is a barren wasteland. They were on the verge of being obliterated all because of their sin and rebellion. And yet, and yet because of who God is, Joel is saying to the people, there is this possibility of reversal. There is this possibility that God in his sovereignty will turn back from the judgment they deserved and even leave a blessing behind him. If only they will turn to him. That's how we need to understand this question, congregation. It's not, it's not a question that is meant to, to make us think, well... If I turn to him, maybe, maybe not, God will forgive me. I'm not sure. No, that's not what the question is meant to do. The question is meant to promote and to provoke true and immediate and humble faith and repentance toward God. That's what, that, that's how that question functioned in, in, in the book of Jonah. Do you remember that story, congregation? Children, do you remember what happened when, when Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh and and the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah said. And he said, I'll just read it here. In Jonah chapter 3. Very similar question. Verse 8 he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell? If God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not. It motivated the Ninevites congregation when Jonah preached to them to repent in dust and ashes. Does that question motivate you to do the same? Or, or are you content to keep living your own life when at any moment God may summon you for judgment? Don't delay turning to God. Let this question instill hope in you who are discouraged, in you who are hopeless in yourself, in you whose, whose spiritual life is like a locust ravaged and drought-stricken land, you who are, who are perhaps suffering the consequences of sin in your life at this very moment. So you turn, you turn in your need to the only one who can change things, pleading, relying grounding yourself on his covenant and his unchangeable character. Who knows if he will turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a, a, a meat offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. You see the hope there, the hope for the restoration of those means that God had appointed in the Old Testament for worshiping him. Tells you repentance is God-centered, doesn't it? But isn't that how we should also then come to the Lord's Supper, recognizing our own unworthiness, yet humbly trusting that we will receive his blessing there? Because that's why he invites us to the table, 
to bless his people, to revive his people, and to strengthen their communion with him. In and through Jesus Christ. You see, that's where this encouragement directs us ultimately. It's not only a well-grounded and a faith-building encouragement, it is so Christ-directing. Because congregation, if you look back in those, that description of the Lord in Joel 2, verse 13, you look back at those attributes of God, where does the Lord most clearly reveal himself in this way? Where does the Lord most clearly reveal his grace and his mercy? It's in Christ. Where does he most clearly reveal that he is slow to anger? It's in Christ. Where does he most clearly reveal his great kindness? It's in Christ. And how is it? How is it that God can be one who relents from doing harm to sinners like you and like me who deserve his judgment and condemnation. It's through Christ, who is the mediator and the surety of the covenant of grace, and who through his substitutionary life and substitutionary death on the cross, the death which we will proclaim next week in the Lord's Supper, it is through that and through himself who has made a curse and an offering for sin that he bestows his blessing on us. The blessing of reconciliation and the blessing of fellowship with God. The Lord's encouragement to return to him is so Christ-centered, so Christ-directed. Oh, then return to God. Let us return to him, all of us, through Jesus Christ, who by his righteousness, his righteousness that he earned, by his obedience, makes us fully acceptable to God. What greater encouragement could there be? And yet we can still struggle, can't we? We can still think sometimes, can someone like me really return to him? Can someone like me really return to to him with all, all my transgressions, all my sins? What if I have disqualified myself? We can, we can have that struggle in our hearts. This brings us more briefly now to our third point. His gracious direction regarding his call. Verses 15 to 17 is is full of commands and exhortations. They are urgent commands that give directions to the people as a whole, directions that that make clear that the call to return is without exception. It's without exception. And it's without any qualification in ourselves. Verses 15 to 16 show us that God's call to return is without exception. Verse 15 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. In verse 16, gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. What is the prophet saying here? He's saying that everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, no matter what their life circumstances may be, is to obey God's call to return by coming together and humbling themselves before him. That's what the fasting and the solemn assembly signifies, a universal humbling of ourselves before the Lord. Do you see the grace in these commands, beloved? 
Yes, there are commands, but, but God is saying by them that He is willing, He is willing that all the people should return to Him without exception. And He is willing to receive all who do return to Him. His commands to fast and to gather together and thereby humble ourselves before Him show us that He, that he calls us to return to Him as we truly are. Because the, the fasting... The fasting here is not a, a fasting to gain salvation. No, it's a fasting that demonstrates humility, that, that, that shows that we come humbly, that we come pleading nothing in ourselves but our sins and our sinfulness. Do you see the grace of this direction? The call to return is without exception. That means you're being called to return. I'm being called to return. We're all being called to turn to the Lord. And that grace continues to flow in the exhortations to the priest in verse 17, where it says, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, and let them say, God gives us words to say. He gives a plea to make, and it's a plea that appeals not to anything in the people. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. And give not thine heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Wherefore, or why should they say among the people, where is their God? You see, congregation, God is so eager for his people's return that he's not content just to call us to return and to repent. That's amazing in itself that he does that. But he even gives words to come to him with. Words to pray to him. Words for people who in their shame and reproach have nothing to say. Who like Job have to, have to say, I put my hand over my mouth. Behold, I am vile. Words to pray for people who deserve God's judgment. Words that appeal to God's pity. Not because of anything in them. But only for, for the honor of his great name. You ever struggle to pray after you've sinned? Do you ever think or say, I, I don't know what to pray? Here I am again, Lord. God gives us words. He gives us the words in this text. He gives us words in, in Psalms like Psalm 51, which you heard a sermon from just recently. He gives us words to speak. Come to God. When you don't know what to pray, when you're on your knees, on your face before him again, having, having sinned again, you come to him and you, can't have, you don't know what to say. Come to him with God's own words, words that he freely and graciously gives you, words that call on him to spare you, to have mercy on you and to have mercy on his church for the honor of his name. But I'm not a priest. Well, you are. Because the New Testament says that every believer, if you are a believer, you are. The New Testament says that believers are a royal priesthood. And yet, there are times when we struggle still even to pray. When we become perhaps so discouraged and so dejected because of our own remaining sins that we feel unable to come to God, even with his own words. What are we to do then? Well then, congregation, then we are to look to the great high priest. That's how, who, of course, we should always be looking to. 
But that's where ultimately this is pointing us. To him who always lives to make intercession for his people. For all who come to God through him. Who always prays for his people. The Father in heaven spares sinners in answer to Christ's intercession. Because that son, his only begotten son, he did not spare. But delivered him up for us all in the place of all his people. That's why. That's why there is a table next week. A table where the Lord promises to receive all who return to him truly and sincerely with nothing in themselves but their sin, relying simply on his son. It's a gracious call. The question for us as we conclude is is this, what are you doing? How are you responding to this call of God? Are you listening? Are you turning to Him? Or are you like that dog at that rest area that was running away from its owner, ignoring Him, refusing to believe in Him? Oh, in view of what we have seen here from our text that his call to return is so gracious revealing his gracious desire his gracious encouragement and his gracious direction why? why would we not all heed his call in dependence on him? therefore also now says the Lord turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. It's in so doing that we may humbly expect and anticipate sweet communion with the Lord, also at his table next week. So turn, and keep turning to the Lord. By his grace. Amen.